1: You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallets, Smart Money Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 42, The Spanish Civil War, Part 7, Jarama and Guadalajara. This week, a big thank you goes out to Joseph for their support on Patreon, where they get access to special ad-free versions of all of the podcast episodes, plus special Patreon-only episodes released once a month. If that sounds interesting to you, head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com members to find out more information. Two episodes ago, we discussed some of the transitions that occurred within the nationalist leadership as it tried to transition from a group executing a coup into one capable of forming a coherent government and staging a civil war. Today, we will look at another important transition that would occur as the Civil War began to intensify. And this was the transition of the Republican military forces from a loose collection of militias to something that looked much more like a typical, traditional military. The Republic would be at a military disadvantage when the fighting began. However, just in terms of numbers, the disparity would not last very long. However, this disparity would return and would grow over time, especially as foreign aid provided to the Nationalists began to vastly outstrip, both in quality and quantity, that which was provided to the Republic. This growing disparity would only come in the later years of the war, and in the autumn of 1936, a more immediate problem had to be solved, and the Republican leaders would make it a priority to transition their forces into more traditional military formations. As they would try to complete this change, the nationalist attacks around Madrid would continue, two of which we will discuss today, the Harama and Guadalajara offensives. These attacks in early 1937 would make it clear that a nationalist military victory, should it occur, would be far from easy. It would also be the point where much of the qualitative advantage that had been enjoyed by the nationalists would dissipate, as the Army of Africa would have many of its most skilled and experienced units suffer horrific losses. For this episode, I've put two maps on the website for each of the battles that we will be discussing today, which might be very useful to check out. In October 1936, the Popular Army would be officially created. This was the first and probably most important step away from the militia units that had dominated the Republican military efforts up to that point. This move was initiated with the support of the remaining officers of the War Ministry, many of the political leaders, and the Communist Party. They believed above all that the only way to effectively defend the Republic was through this action. This idea was reinforced by the incredibly poor performance of the militias when met with the early offensives of the Army of Africa and other nationalist forces as they moved on Madrid. An important point to remember is that this decision, made in October, was before the actual Battle of Madrid started. And up to that point, after the initial success of meeting the coup attempt, the Republicans had known little but defeat during the fighting. These failures would be the reason for the final push back towards a more formal military structure. There were also hopes among communist leaders that such a move would help to solidify their power and reduce the powers of the militias controlled by their political opponents, especially the anarchists. Speaking of those anarchist militias, they were not really big on the idea of militarizing the militias. For the anarchists, the traditional state military was seen as the antithesis of their beliefs. And so, when they were being folded into the new army, they were, at the very least, greatly concerned. However, these ideological concerns were met with a litany of reasons for why the militia system was incapable of what it was being asked to do. Most of the individuals within the militia units had no formal military training, and they were led by elected officers who were often trade union or community leaders. They weren't soldiers. There was resistance to orders and little coordination between units. Even if many anarchists might recognize these concerns, there would still be resistance to the militarization that was being forced upon them. It did not help that the people who had been willing to drop everything and join the militias were some of the most dedicated to their beliefs, and often those beliefs conflicted with the militarization process. Regardless of possible concerns with what was happening, the militia units would be slowly militarized, with columns turned into battalions and brigades in late 1936, with larger units organized in 1937. This would split the anarchist militia members in the same way that the larger collaborationist argument would split the movement during the Civil War. Along with the reorganization during the winter of 1936 and 1937, three additional classes of conscripts would be called up, These were the 1933 to 1935 classes, so they were 19 to 21 years of age. There were also some volunteers that continued to trickle in, with some young men motivated to enlist for the food, if nothing else, as there were serious food shortages in many areas of Republican Spain. All these sources combined allowed for the number of men in the Republican military to greatly expand, and by the spring of 1937, they were able to muster about 320,000 men in total, These forces were split into three different groups, the first being 130,000 in central and southern Spain, which were under the command of the government from Valencia, 100,000 would be in the northern enclave, which were under the command of local leaders, and 30,000 would be in Aragon, in the northeast, which was under the control of the Catalonian government. Within these armies, there were two primary problems, at least when it came to the men who led them. First up was the fact that many of the same problems that would plague the nationalist armies would also affect the Republicans. This meant that their officers were often hesitant and far more used to the bureaucracy of peace than the action of war. There also was simply not enough of them, especially when it came to staff officers who were so important in terms of organization. This shortage of staff officers and a general lack of imagination among many of the commanding officers resulted in several very straightforward Republican operations. Even in the cases where they were able to achieve tactical success, it often proved impossible for any operational success to be found, which was absolutely not a problem unique to the Republican forces. The Nationalists and many of the armies during the First World War and during the Second World War would have similar problems. This meant that even the successful Republican attacks would often transition into a battle of attrition very quickly, with the Nationalists able to contain the advances. Many of these attacks were planned by, at the time, Colonel Vicente Roja, who would be one of the most influential Republican military leaders and would later be chief of the general staff. One of the operations under consideration was an attack near the Harama Valley, but the Nationalists would attack in the same area first. This attack would be launched in the continuing effort to cut off Madrid, which, even after the efforts of the Nationalist forces in late 1936 and the first week of 1937, was still far from surrounded. The plan was to launch an attack to the southeast of the city over the Jarama River, with the objective of cutting the highway that led to Valencia, where the Republican government had fled during the early stages of the attack on Madrid. The larger plan was to then continue the advance and to meet an attack coming from the north, with the Jarama effort joined by an attack by the Italian Volunteer Corps to the north of the city, in the hopes of the two forces meeting at Acala de Henares. However, there were always delays in preparing for the Guadalajara attack in the north, with some pretty poor January weather playing a part, which prompted Franco to decide to launch the Harama offensive by itself. The troops allocated for the attack would once again be under the command of General Varela, who would have about 25,000 men, although only, uh, only 5 or so thousand would be directly taking part in the attack. The majority of these troops were from Morocco, which gave the Nationalist officers additional confidence in their success. They would be supported by German machine guns, tanks, and artillery. The plan called for an attack that would reach the river and then cross it to establish some beachheads, then advance to the high ground near the Valencia Highway, and then finally that final push to Alcala to meet the Italians. As I mentioned just a bit ago, the Republicans were also planning for an attack in this area. The Soviet advisors that had been sent to Spain had been suggesting such an attack, and the Republican general staff had finally agreed. The troops had even been moved into the area, with around 50 battalions already in place, which meant that when the attack began, there was rough parity between the forces involved. The initial jumping-off date for the Nationalists had been January 24th, but starting on that day, there would be rain for 10 consecutive days— This turned the area into a muddy mess, and when the rain finally ended on February 4th, it soon became apparent to the Republicans that the Nationalists were going to launch an attack. The Republican leaders quickly canceled any preparations for their own offensives, which was planned to start in the near future, and instead had all units prepare to meet the attack. While they knew it was coming, they did not know exactly where the focal point would be. On the Nationalist side, after the rain had ended, the attack was rescheduled for February 6th, On that date, there was some initial success, and the Republican forces would be thrown back in confusion. By February 8th, nationalist forces would reach the river in many areas and had consolidated control over most of the West Bank. However, they were unable to ford the river due to all of the recent rain, and so they were delayed. This gave the Republican forces a breather. But there was still some concern within the Republican leadership that the current attack was simply a feint and a diversion, either of another attack elsewhere on the front, or as a precursor for the current attack to switch directions and begin to move directly towards Madrid. This made the Republican leaders hesitant to commit further resources to this specific area of the front. The first nationalist troops across the river would make the jump at the Pendoc Rail Bridge, Varela would order a night attack against the bridge in the hopes that this would catch the Republican defenders by surprise. This was achieved with a small force crossing the river and killing several sentries with knives. These sentries were actually Frenchmen who were members of the 14th International Brigade, and their death allowed the nationalist units to capture the bridge and begin to move men and equipment across. This included anti-tank guns, which were brought across the bridge in time to deal with a small group of tanks used in a Republican counterattack. There was heavy fire thrown at the bridge by both the 12th International Brigade and Republican Artillery, which slowed the advance of the brigade that had made the crossing. This could not prevent the establishment of a stable bridgehead, though, and while this represented a success for the Nationalists, the entire attack had been a costly one, with 720 casualties. When the advance was resumed the next day, it would run into two major problems— The first was that the two international brigades that were in their path put up some serious resistance, and the Republican artillery would continue to shell the bridge and surrounding areas, making movement of men and supplies to the forward areas quite difficult. Another crossing was made at dawn in just a few hours after the advance at Pindock. This crossing was at San Martín de la Vega. In both of these areas, progress was made, but the defenders, both international and Spanish, would be able to hold on to a few important geographical features. Attacks continued during February 13th, pushing forward until eventually troops from the Pindoc Bridgehead were able to reach the Valencia Highway. By this point, some of the defenders were beginning to collapse, but Varela felt that the troops were too far forward and exposed to a possible flank attack, and so he ordered a halt to their advance. What they did not know was that they had pushed the Republican defenders into a state of complete disorganization, but the nationalist overestimation of Republican forces called for caution. Varela then requested further reinforcements before any further attacks were ordered. This pause provided time for Republican forces to be brought into the area and a counterattack to be launched, including 50 Russian T-26 tanks that had made their way to Spain. The counterattack was not able to erase all of the Nationalist gains, but it did seriously reduce the ability of the Nationalist forces to attempt another attack. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust The attack at Harama was important for many reasons, not the least of which was that it represented a clear end to nationalist supremacy in two key areas. The first was in the air, because during the offensive, the Republican air forces were able to obtain some level of control of the airspace through the use of their Russian aircraft and pilots. The Russian planes were better, and there were more of them, with the nationalists having problems getting more fighters from the Italians who were at that point their primary source. The larger change was within the Nationalist army itself. They had entered the war with a notable advantage in terms of experience within their ranks. But on the Harama, many thousands of those troops had been sacrificed. Some historians have equated it to what happened to the British forces at Ypres in late 1914 with the attack at Harama sacrificing simply too many of the professional soldiers that had come across from Africa in the early days of the Civil War, which was a resource that the Nationalists could not replace, either easily or quickly. The effective resistance of the Republican troops was also very different than some of the earlier attacks in the autumn of 1936, and the Nationalist leaders, Franco among them, simply could not adapt fast enough to this new reality. There was heavy criticism of the nationalist commanders for their actions during the Harama attacks, and especially of their decision to continue such attacks even as the costs mounted. This criticism primarily fell on General Orgaz, uh, Varela's commander, and Orgaz would be removed, although he would be reassigned to command the mobilization and training of officers for the nationalist army. The objective of the offensive was also never achieved. The Valencia road remained open. There were discussions about resuming the attack when the Italians attacked near Guadalajara in early March, but it was decided that the troops near the Harama were simply not capable of mounting further efforts. Even with the failure of the attacks on the Harama, the planned attacks in the north would still be scheduled to occur, even though it would only do so after a delay. Franco still wanted to capture and isolate the capital, and there was also pressure coming from the Italians to have their troops, the Corpo Troupe Volontaire or the CTV, used in an attack. The CTV was commanded by Major General Mario Roada, and was primarily made up of Italians that had been part of the fascist Black Shirt Militia who had first seen action in Ethiopia. Mussolini wanted the CTV used for such an attack as a way of boosting Italian military prestige, and so supplies and men were moved into the area for the attack during the early months of 1937. Harada would eventually have over 31,000 men, although not all of them would take part in the attack, and those that did would be joined by many Spanish units as well. Interestingly, there was also a huge stockpile of chemical weapons moved into place, including mustard, phosgene, and less lethal substances like tear gas. These would not end up being used, but they were in Spain, to be used by Italian forces, and apparently Mussolini was an advocate for them, even though, again, they would not end up being used. As mentioned earlier, the initial plan had been to launch the Italian attack simultaneously with the one on Gerama. But due to the Italian delays, the attack in the south would occur unsupported. By the time that the CTV was ready, the attacks in the south had ended, and so the northern attacks would be the ones going forward unsupported in March. This did not greatly deter either Franco or Rowada from launching the attacks, with the vague hope that once the northern troops got rolling, attacks in the south could resume as well. The Italian plans were to attack towards Guadalajara from the northwest. They would move along the road that ran into the town, using the black shirt troops as a spearhead for the offensive. The final objective of the attack, Alcala, was 75 kilometers away, which is where they planned to meet with Varela's troops moving up from the south. Apparently, when this planning was occurring, Ruana and the other Italian leaders had very little idea what they were actually attacking into, and they possessed very few maps of the area. This prevented proper detailed planning from occurring, which, when combined with some of the poor decisions made during the process, would create real issues. For example, the weather was predicted to be quite poor on the opening day of the attack, March 4th, and it was likely there would be rain combined with cold weather. However, this was not seen as a huge problem by the Italian leaders, because they believed that the attack would be quick, and once it got going, it wouldn't stop, to the point where they ordered the field kitchens to be left behind, which I'm sure the Italian troops were really big fans of. After the Italian plans were shown to Franco, the nationalist leader was concerned that the Italians were leaving themselves far too exposed on their left flank, but the Italians were very confident and did not heed these concerns. As the Italian troops prepared for the attack on the night of March 7th, the weather was abysmal, with snow, sleet, rain, and cold temperatures making everything very uncomfortable. In some areas, visibility was down to 100 meters, but that did not prevent the advance from beginning, with the Italian troops on the left and the Spanish troops on the right. Despite these issues, progress was made, and while some sectors fared better than others, a bit under 20 kilometers was achieved at the furthest point. A lack of visibility, beyond making things very difficult, also caused some officers to favor a more cautious approach, which slowed the advance. On the next day, there would be great progress made on the far left of the attack, mostly thanks to the efforts of the motorized Italian troops, who were able to use some armored cars to quickly pass through the Republican lines. However, the poor weather continued, which caused the entire operation to slow down. Some Republican reinforcements had arrived on March 8th, but at least initially, these were small in number. After the large jumps of March 7th and 8th, the Italian left found that any further progress would be hard-going. One of the largest problems was logistical, with the road network disrupted by the battle, which caused a huge problem as supplies and men tried to continue towards the front. This, along with the stiffening of Republican defenses and the growing exhaustion of the attacking forces, meant that over the next several days, even though more attacks were launched, they barely crawled forward. In an attempt to restart the advance, additional air resources were brought in, with Italian and German bombers being utilized in greater numbers, and this included the first combat flights of the German HE-111. In addition to more air support, more Italian troops were also added to the front, and they would initially do quite well. On March 11th, they would be able to move in and capture their objective of Torhia. However, on the left and the right of this advance, far less progress was made, which left those that had advanced the furthest in a dangerously exposed salient. The troops on the left were eventually able to take the town of Bujueva, which was one of their core objectives, but they were far behind schedule in running out of men and energy. By the end of March 11th, the Italian forces were in a rough spot. They had failed in their attempts to decisively break through the Republican front. Four days of fighting in cold, damp weather was just adding to the normal exhaustion experienced by troops in combat. When they asked Franco about the status of further efforts on the Harama to try and make further Italian successes more likely, Franco said that they would resume the next day. These attacks would not occur. And instead, a Republican counterattack would be launched to try and recapture the territory lost in the Italian advance. Even before they began their counterattack, Republican strength was rapidly growing, both on the ground with a total of 35,000 men brought in and also in the air. Much like at Harama, the fighters provided by the Russians were able to control the skies and launch air attacks against Italian and nationalist formations. It was challenging for the nationalist forces to interdict these attacks due to the weather. The Republicans also had the advantage of flying out of larger airfields, specifically the one at Albacita, uh, which had paved runways. The nationalist air facilities in the area paled in comparison, and many of the nationalist airfields were dirt runways, which had become almost unusable due to the rain. With these resources, the Republicans planned to launch a counterattack, and the plan was very simple. Troops would be concentrated onto two axes. The first one would be given most of the available tanks and it would move up the Saragoza Road. The second would cross the Tejana River with the goal of retaking Briueva. On the other side of the line, the Italians were also preparing to attack, which was a decision made only after several discussions between Murata, Mola, and Franco. Rorada was hesitant to continue the attack, and Mussolini was already agitating for the CTV to be moved to another part of the front, hopefully one where great offensives were more likely. Mussolini was concerned that events around Madrid were simply reaching a stalemate, and he had sent the CTV to Spain for great sweeping victories, not to get embroiled in battles of attrition. Rwada was eventually convinced to resume the attack. He had been concerned about the possibility of a counterattack, but with the possible resumption of the attack in the cards and in the very near future, the Italian units had not been told to spend enough time preparing their defenses, which would make them vulnerable when the Republican attack was launched. The counterattack would begin on March 12th and would continue at varying levels of intensity for the next 10 days. They would, for the most part, slowly push forward, with both Soviet tanks and aircraft used to try and keep some momentum going. After the first attack on the 12th, the next major effort would be on the 18th. On that day, the weather was against the Republicans, with heavy cloud cover in the morning. Hours later, when the sky cleared, the Soviet tanks under the command of Colonel Pavlov would move forward. The Italians found it very difficult to keep the situation under control, with one of the reasons being that this attack had the fortune of attacking while Rowada was away from his command post, having flown to Salamanca for discussions with Franco. In his absence, a withdrawal was ordered, which resulted in the Republican recapture of Bujuega. Rowada was informed of this retreat while in a meeting with Franco, which I'm sure was a really fun moment for him. The withdrawal of the Italians caught the Republicans unable to truly follow up before a new line was established. Further attacks were launched on March 22nd, but they were unable to replicate the earlier successes. In the end, the line settled down with about half of the territory in nationalist hands that they had held at the high water point of their offensive. For this small advance, without any major objectives captured, the Italians had lost just under 3,000 men. However, the effects on the CTV went far beyond just numbers. Their morale was shattered. The situation was bad enough that Franco discussed disbanding the CTV altogether and dispersing all the men and equipment to other units. Instead, Rawada was removed from command, and the CTV was put through a large reorganization with General Etoro Bastico uh, arriving to take command. For the Republicans, Guadalajara was publicized as a great victory. It, It really boosted morale. In terms of the course of the war, the two battles at Jarama and Guadalajara had one further effect. They would mark the point where Franco's focus on quickly capturing Madrid was finally broken, forcing him to accept that it would be a longer-term project and that nationalist efforts were better used elsewhere. Next episode, we will discuss the Northern Republican Enclave, which would become that elsewhere.